So let me ask you this. Can you take yourself any more seriously than writing a book about your own spiritual journey? Yep. Have your friend interview you on your own podcast about your book, about your spiritual journey. Welcome to Consciously, a podcast focused on honest conversation by regular people and for regular people seeking spiritual growth. Consciously, how's it going? It's Menachem. So I'm here with my buddy, Shmaya Hanekman, uh, who is a co-editor on, on The Light Revealed. Um, and I want to welcome you here today, Shmaya. Hey, Shmaya. Hey. And uh, I want to welcome everybody here with us. I'm grateful to be here. we got a lot of great stuff going on on Consciously. We did, just did some great interviews. I'm in the middle. I have a couple of interviews that are planned and planning a new season. But this is a, a different project we're working on is this current project, which is going to be an interview series that Shmaya is going to do of me about my new book, Consciously. So now I don't have to shamelessly plug my new book that's out from Mosaica Press called Consciously, Six Steps to a Vibrant Relationship with Our Creator. But I will plug our social media pages, uh, The Light Revealed, which is a sister project that Shmaya and I work on together. I put out some great content on Instagram and on Facebook and also our Consciously podcast Facebook and Instagram pages that are on Instagram that my daughter Zoe is managing. I'm really grateful for that. I got both of my kids working for me. Tiny does my artwork and Zoe does my Instagram uh, social media. So that's great. Um, If you're liking our podcast, I want to remind you to follow us, subscribe, and give us a five-star review, Uh, especially on Apple Podcasts. That helps us get out there. It helps us move up the rankings. And that means that people are searching for spiritual Jewish spiritual and Jewish stuff, they'll find us, which is really good. So what we're going to do is we're actually Facebook living this, which is part of the experience. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hand off the microphone to Shmaya. I'm going to take off my headphones and not pay attention to the sound of my own voice. And uh, Shmaya is going to take over and ask me questions about my book, Consciously, which is uh, a project I worked on for a total uh, 10 years, even though I put it aside for a few years. Uh, especially while I was working on Stepping Out of the Abyss, which is the other book that I co-wrote with Arya Buxbayev. And uh, I'm really grateful that it's come out and it's been amazing. The, the, the content within it, as I've mentioned on the podcast, really has transformed my life. This book, more than any other project that I've worked on, is an expression of what they call in recovery my experience, strength, and hope, at least as relates um, Jewish spirituality. Um, so it's been, a, it's been a really amazing a journey, and every time I encounter people that are interested in the book, or have read the book, or are interested, open to reading the book, or you know, talk about the content, I'm like, it's incredibly meaningful for me because um, because I'm sharing a little bit of myself. It's not like my ideas or my understanding, but really my experience. So with that, I'm going to uh, take a deep breath and let go of the reins, and I hand it over to my my main man Shmaya. Hey, how's it going, Menachem? How you doing today? Hey, Shmaya. So, you know, I as we're starting this process of what I, in my notes, have written down as called consciously the interview, as, okay. we, <laughs> as we are starting this process, I felt it was appropriate to start with the introductory chapter, the introduction. Okay. I figured this was also a nice way for the listeners and the readers to get to know you a little bit better, because I, I realized while I was reading it, there may be readers 
who don't know you and have never met you or have ever heard you talk. Hopefully. 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 <laughs> right? right? With its intention. If we're doing things right. So, so this is maybe an opportunity to introduce you to them, you know, through, okay. through the introductory chapter. So the very first thing I noticed while I was reading the introduction was that you speak in the I form, mm-hmm. in, the, in the first person. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about why you did that? Uh, so that's interesting. So when I, I mean, I find that interesting because it's about me. But in addition to that, I find it interesting because it's not the way I originally placed it. Mm. And it took me a lot of uh, time and effort to be willing to do that. Um, actually, uh, if I'm being really, really frank, I think I'm giving credit where credit's due the most. I don't know if it was anybody else. For sure, Joey, uh, Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld had had some influence in this regard, but Arie Bookspy have probably had the biggest influence um, because he read the introduction and he made a comment to me that it lacked my voice. Oh, wow. Um, the, the epilogue, the final kind of part of the book, which is very moving for me. Actually, I, I've cried a number of times when reading it. It really is an, like an expression of like the core of my soul, which is maybe sometimes I feel like maybe that's simplistic, but it doesn't matter. That's like, I, I tear up when I read it because it really, I really meant it when I read it. He read that and he said, you need to find a way to put that in the beginning, to put yourself in the beginning. And I was very hesitant about it. And then I realized that the re- the way the way I started writing this book was that I, Yudi Wiener, you, you know Yudi, who I mentioned in the um, in the acknowledgments, introduced me to Bulvavi Mishkanevna and the Shirim, the classes of Rav Moshe Weinberger on that Sefer. Um, and it was my first exposure to Rav Weinberger. Um, other people had tried to introduce me to his teachings and his you know, what, what he was making available as classes and stuff. And I was resistant because I used to definitely be more, but I, by na- I have a nature of part of me that's a little skeptical. So I tend to like avoid, particularly the more attractive the person, the more I avoid them. So I actually heard you once say that you're not a joiner. You don't <laughs> join things. <laughs> yes, I'm not a joiner. It's, it takes me a long time to really join things. And then even so, it's hard for me to like give myself over to things. It's not, it's not as easy for me. So uh, thank you. Yeah, that's, that's a good story. So that's a good, that was a good conversation. I remember that conversation. Yeah. <sighs> so what happened was I started to learn that safer and I started to write notes in the safer. I actually have it here. It's actually right there. I'm learning it with Zoe now and I have my original safer and it's full of, it's torn apart like any good book that you read. And I was writing notes in it and I started to conceptualize like a real concrete action plan that wasn't necessarily laid out in the book in the way that I was experiencing it, but in, but it was, you know, it was there, but it wasn't necessarily there. And I started to write notes and I started to say, oh, this could really be a book. Now at the time they hadn't translated into English. So I had actually been like translating it for myself. Interesting thing. I'm dyslexic and it's very, languages do not come easy to me. Um, the, you know, reading does not come easy to me. It took me until I was in my early twenties to be able to, let's say, read from a Hebrew safer without tremendous effort. Bavavi Mishkanevna, the book that consciously is based on, this is just to give you a sense of how impactful that book was on me. It's written in very, very modern kind of, um, plain language, plain language Hebrew. Yeah. So I was able to like take a modern Hebrew dictionary and learn the safer. And, and I did that. And then it became like an exercise. And that was probably the first safer, the first book, Jewish book that I read cover to cover in Hebrew by myself. Oh, wow. So, um, and then I went on to other, some other books. And eventually at that time I was in my early twenties and I was like, I really want to learn 
how to learn in Hebrew by myself. And I put a lot of effort in, um, and I, and now I'm able to not learn everything because I, I, a lot of stuff I'm, I, I do struggle with language. It doesn't come as natural to me, but, but that, that book definitely started it anyway. So, so I'm now like translating this book. It started out because of my, I think it's related to my dyslexia. I always related it to dyslexia and, 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 um, processing how I process, um, information. When I read it, I read very slowly. I, I write, I love writing, but reading is, is very, very, I have to read very slowly in order to like take things in. I'm much more of an auditory, auditory learner. So I was basically translating the book plus coming up with this framework. And then they, and then they put out an English translation, which was actually translated or at least edited by Ruf Weinberger himself. Right. So anyways, I went to Ruf Weinberger and I said, I, I think I should, um, I'm like kind of writing a book. Like, do you think that this makes sense? Because you've already translated into English. And he was very encouraging. And, and I remember I was saying, like, I'm not sure if I'm ever going to publish this. Or this is what came out of the meeting. I don't remember if he said it or I said it. Um, I remember saying it, but it would make more sense that he said it to me. But I don't want to uh, make up any myths. But, like, it doesn't really matter if you ever publish it for anybody else. It'll be useful for you to be able to take in the material. So that's the way the book started. Oh, wow. It was my personal kind of notebook of how I was in like absorbing this information. And then I started to add in some of my own kind of the own, my own exercises I picked up for my interaction with 12 step recovery from the people that I work with and in my learning in about mindfulness in the therapeutic realm. And that's how consciously occurred. So it is like, as I said a few minutes ago, it's like literally an outgrowth of my personal experience. So against my kind of nature I decided I was going to write the introduction in the first person. And I basically rewrote the entire introduction from like a third person narrator um, vantage point to a first person. This is my experience. Now, one of the reasons I avoided that was because I don't want to present myself as a guru because I'm, I'm not a guru at all. Right. I'm not like some guy. I'm just a guy. But I do have a very meaningful relationship with God. And I think other like regular, normal, limited knucklehead, you know, people can also have a vibrant relationship with God with this, um, with this method. And that's what's so powerful about it. So I'm happy that you mentioned that you rewrote it. Cause that was going to be like a follow-up question I had. Did you just go back and switch every we or you into I and me? Some of it was that, but some of it was different. Some of it was actually the willingness to put myself out there. Yeah. Cause I get a sense while reading it, I, I could hear your voice in it. Which yeah, is, which is fantastic. So I'm, I'm I'm happy to hear that. That's how yeah. the process went. That's something I shoot for in my writing. I I try to write that way, and and I do I do write that way naturally. But I really try to write that way. Um, I don't I don't know that it's the perfect way to write, but it's just the way that my when I write, that's what emerges. Mm. Um, and that's why when that epilogue was finished and completed, Arie was like, "This is real." The other thing, and he probably used a crude word or something yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sure to tell me to get off my high horse, you know, this is pretentious basically, Yeah, um, which hurt, but it was, you know, good friends give good feedback. He's able to be honest that way. Yeah. Yeah. He's a good friend in that way. Yeah. So you briefly speak about your struggle with feeling worthy of a relationship with God and spirituality mm. in the introduction. Yeah. Um, in the sense of saying like, if I tried harder, I would get it. Right. And my question really is focused. Do you have a sense of why you felt that you needed to be worthy? Like, where did that feeling come from? 
It's a good question. I mean, it, it, it emerged in my experience of Judaism, you know, so like me personally on, I guess, a biographical level, I don't know how far you want to go into this, but I, uh, my family was not actively observant in an Orthodox way um, until I was 10, 11 or so. Um, I went to day school with a very kind of vibrant Jewish identity uh, as a young child, but my family became religious and I was an active participant in that process. So the reason I say that is because I was like a very much a seeker throughout my experience when I was 15, 16 years old, even when I was kind of being rebellious in whatever way I was. Um, not that I was like overtly rebellious, but when I was, I had, you know, I was a teenager. I, at the same time, was kind of actively seeking spirituality and seeking a vibrant message of spirituality uh, from within Judaism. And I don't know whether it was the people that taught me or the books that I read or just the way that I heard them or incorporated them or, you know, it built into my DNA from, you know, 3,000 years of Jewish history or, I don't know, I, I can't tell you, but my experience of the entirety of that, of turning 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 and learning Jewish texts, spiritual texts, my experience was the reason why you don't feel connected to God is because you're, you're not enough. And if you just become enough, if you just get there, if you just have enough or do enough or be enough, then you'll get the satisfaction that you're looking for. And it, it never came. I mean, I had, I had glimpses of it, obviously. And I had periods of my life where I felt it, like right. really, right. like three months, six months of time where I was like, oh my God, I've hit, I've, I've arrived, as they say, you know, and then invariably I would turn around in darkness and fall away and I was stuck. Now, some of these messages that I gained from Bhavad Mishkanavna were similar to the time that I started to engage or be exposed to the teachings of Hasidus. And I see this as part of the messages in and around Hasidus. And it was also around the time that I became exposed to 12-step thinking and started to work with people in 12-step programs. So it's really the combination of all of those experiences that led me to the awareness that thinking that God was holding a carrot in front of me to try to get me to keep being or doing something was never going to play out for me. So for the sake of broadening that, yeah. do you think in your professional opinion and also maybe from your personal experience with working with people that maybe there's something inherent in us that approaches a relationship with God from a place of unworthiness that then we need to shed in order to have that? Or do you think it was your personal experience? Well, I mean, as, listen, as human beings, I'm, I'm asking. Right, right. So, I mean, listen, there's no question. I mean, if you look at, let's say, you know, to, to, to look at it from a different angle, um, and I'm a huge fan of capitalism, but capitalism leverages human competitiveness and the, the desire for a human being to earn his own keep, you know, and, and the desire for a human being to accomplish and even leverages greed to a degree, right? Which is maybe where some of the negative outcomes of, of that, you know, system emerges. So human beings are complex. So the fact that I might apply a give and take aspect to my relationship with God is not surprising. It's like very, that does exist. A meritocracy exists in many areas of life. And right? so the novelty here is that there is no meritocracy. When it comes to a relationship with God. Yeah. Yeah. I, I never thought about framing it that way, but yes. Yes. I think that's part of the message 
is that there is no meritocracy when it comes to there's listen i think there's a meritocracy when it comes to the quality of a human being and once a person has a relationship with god the degree to which they adhere to a certain level of moral conviction can have impact on the degree to which they experience that relationship but the relationship itself is not you know a meritocracy um I think that's the proper way of saying it, but it's it's not based on merit. It's not merit driven. Anyone is worthy of a relationship with God. So let's say, for example, you know, I have a relationship with my son. Now that relationship can be a good relationship or a negative relationship. That's one thing. But second of all, if I work on myself, and let's say if I had trauma in my in my past, and I were to resolve those traumas, and if I have the discipline to put my phone down and spend time with him when we have time. And if I have the ability to put my ego aside and and allow him to have his journey, the relationship that we have might be deeper or I might be able to experience it at a deeper level and it might then be more satisfying. But the relationship itself exists exists, and it's not merit-based. And it might be merit-based with another human being because they could choose not to be in relationship with you. But... But, um, and the same obviously exists for a spouse. I used a son because my, my daughter, right? Because they were born, they didn't have a choice in the right. process, right? But I think that, and, and so therefore there's less choice in the relationship. But what's beautiful about a relationship with God in the same way as a relationship with a parent or with a child is that it literally is hoisted upon you and it's there. And the question is, do you become conscious of it, which we get into later in the book, or are you unconscious of it? And then once you're conscious of it, and this I mentioned in the book, having a conscious relationship with God might lead you to want to express your relationship with God by adhering further to the religion of your background or your religion of your conviction. But it's not, I'm adhering to religion in order to earn a relationship with God. I'm adhering to a religion in order to express and enhance the relationship with God that, that is already, already vibrant have. and present. Very cool. Yeah. So that, and that's like the basis of a lot of what we're talking about in the book. Right? And there was that kind of paradigm shift that really occurred. Um, and that's the separation. You know, you mentioned it um, just a minute ago, and it's also the way you wrote out the book. You, you went on to speak about how your conceptions of building a relationship with God were, were wrong up until you encountered what you were encountering. And when you were doing that in the book, you quoted 12-step recovery, Ramchal, in the beginning of the introduction, you quoted the Tanya. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how you developed a relationship with such a, a wide array of source material. Okay, so so first of all, I want to reframe what you said because I, I don't think it's that it's those things, those ways of approaching those things are wrong. I don't think it's right or wrong. I don't think that's the matter. What it is is that it didn't work for me. And there's an authentic alternative that I didn't know was available. Meaning, if, if it works for somebody, for their relationship, their fundamental relationship with God, for them to look at that relationship as Americans. purely merit, like, okay, that's fine. But I didn't know that I could look at it a different way. I didn't know that I was allowed to look at it a different way. And those sources in specific and others gave, opened my eyes to the fact that I was allowed to look at it in a different way, that that was authentic as far as Judaism is concerned, and that it worked. So before you jump into answering the question, the reframe that you just did was instead of saying that those conceptions were wrong, um, those conceptions just didn't work for you. Yeah, exactly. And that and that's a big part of the book because the book doesn't seek to present a philosophy. It seeks to present a method for 
um, engaging a program of action toward developing that relationship. It actually, I, I really, we really tried to make every effort by we, I mean myself, the editors, Joe, Joey Rosenfeld, who was the kind of a content editor that really I, we kicked around these, a lot of ideas about it was not necessarily to kind of fixate on presenting a, a philosophy and acknowledge when we were coming from a vantage point of philosophy in the sense that I believe in the Torah, I believe in, in Orthodox Judaism. Right. I believe that, but I was trying to make it available because I think the system, the method could be available to anybody from almost any philosophy standpoint, unless their philosophy was whatever I'm saying is, is heresy and not true. And you're not allowed to have, you don't have a relationship with God based on merit. And that's a lie. If someone would say that that's fine, but I, I'm not basing that on my own, you know, experience. philosophical expertise. I'm basing that on, and I'm not even basing it exactly on my experience. I'm basing it on texts that are ancient and are, and are, are um, rooted in the deepest tradition of the, the inner world of Torah. Right. So, uh, you know, so I, I feel like I'm standing on, on, on good ground. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, why originally I was going to try to get this book published by a, a secular author, a secular publisher, but it was very much important to me that even though I was trying to make the book available to as wide array as possible, it still met the standard of Torah at the same time. Um, and I was very fortunate that Rav Weinberger was willing to review the book and Rebecca from Goldberg was willing to review the book and Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld was re- willing to review the book and that Mosaica was willing to take the book on because that, um, validated some level of authenticity and gave me gave me license to be as broad as I could because I really think that this is a broad system. So you asked about my experience in all of those things. So I'm a social worker um, and uh, by trade, by trade and, by trade and training. Um, and um, I've worked as a, psycho, a psychotherapist. Um, I've worked in many different capacities. Um, but one of the most important capacities I've worked in is as the director of The Living Room, which is a which we work together and Shmaya works for me at the living room and, and the light revealed is a, is a project of the living room as is consciously. So the living room is a, is a clubhouse for Jewish young people who are in recovery from substance abuse um, and other addictions. And many of those people and most of those people um, are engaged and involved in 12 step programs. And um, what happened when I took that job, I was familiar already with 12 step recovery. When I took, when I got that job, uh, I was, like just about to graduate from Wurzweiler from graduate school. Um, and I was familiar with recovery, but one of the things that happens if you want to be really, really effective at working with people in recovery, you have to know recovery really, really well. You can't get along with like a, a superficial awareness of recovery. I think people that do that do themselves and the people they work with a deep disservice. So I spent a long time really, really studying 12 step recovery from both a practical level of applying the principles that the 12 steps put out into my life in a really meaningful way in a number of areas of my life, the degree that like I've shared with you a story where a colleague of mine in supervision told me I was a 12 stepper. And at first I was, first of all, for the reason that you described before that I'm not a joiner, I was resistant to that for that reason, but also I didn't want to be like lobbed into like, as if that was the entirety of my way of seeing the world. Uh, which it's not, but then I took a step back and I said, yeah, yeah, I am. I really believe in that system. I really see how it's transformed tens of millions of lives all around the world. And it's an unbelievable, intuitive and novel way of approaching a problem that really, really impacts 
humanity, which is addiction, particularly alcoholism, drug addiction, but addictions of all kinds. So, and, and other problems as well. So I really immersed myself into the 12 steps uh, until, and I mentioned earlier, the book that I wrote, until at a certain point I got a pamphlet from a guy in Israel who was kind of resistant to 12-step recovery and think you know had the position that it was kind of contrary to Judaism. And he put out a pamphlet and that pamphlet was circling around and there were a lot of people that were freaking out and someone approached me and asked me some questions about that. And I, I, I was like, I really have to write something. I had been in a number of conversations and meetings about this um, and I asked Arya to join me. Arya Buxbaev was a dear friend of mine and a colleague and somebody I really admire. And we have very, very complementary uh, skills uh, and and learning in the sense that some, we see things opposite many times and he's good at things that I'm bad at and I'm good at things that he's not as good at. So we wrote this book called Stepping Out of the Abyss, A Jewish Guide to 12 Steps. And that was a whole different level of encountering the 12 Steps because I was now encountering the 12 Steps as a practitioner as a um, you know someone practicing the 12 steps uh, I was engaged in the 12 steps as a social worker who was working with people in 12-step recovery and now is engaging it as a researcher and an author and that was amazing and it gave me a tremendous experience so that, that was 12 steps and then uh, part of what happened as I mentioned earlier I had gone to more of the Lithuanian school of um, yeshivos of higher learning in Judaism, in my Orthodox Judaism. And I was not exposed to the teachings of Hasidus, of, of Dober of Mizrich and the Baal Shem Tov and his students at all. I was kind of uh, averse to them um, and for a long time. But as I described in the book, that I went through a period of time shortly after I got married, probably it was 25, 26, 27. And whatever I had been running on before wasn't working and I was really, really uh, spinning my wheels. Um, Yudi Wiener had a who was a colleague who's a psychologist who also does a lot of work with people in recovery. And he was a mentor to me for a long time, or he is a mentor for me. Still, we speak, you know, almost every day. He invited me to learn with him, some Hasidus. And that opened a whole door. Eventually, Bavavi Mishkanevna, Rav Weinberger, Rav Weinberger introduced me to Tanya, asked me to learn that. That led to me being introduced to Mayor Prager, who I mentioned in the acknowledgments. And that began a path of thrusting myself into the world of Chabad Hasidus and uh, connection to the Lubavitcher Rebbe. But along the way, there was also attachment to the teachings of, just from for those coming from an Orthodox Jewish background, Roshan Shemifal Hirsch, whose writings, both of those, the, both of those scholars, their writings, um, had tremendous impact on me. And it kind of created this, I started to evolve this kind of outlook on life that was very, very different from what I had thought when I was 23 years old, 22 years old, 21 years old, when I thought I had the whole world figured out and I thought God was dangling a carrot in front of me. And then if I squeezed hard enough, I might have those feelings for more than a fleeting moment. Right. So that's a very long winded answer to that question, but that's basically what's occurred and and it's not over. That journey is not over. I, I didn't mention Rabbi Nachman of Breslov because there was a there was there was a, mo- a time where I became exposed to those and Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld more recently. It's you know it's it's an ever evolving journey. It's funny, I, while we're sitting here and biographically talking about how you developed such an array of source material and how you developed a relationship with that source material, uh, I realized I, for the most part, have been on the sidelines of that journey since you were really started it 
Yeah, almost. Yeah, pretty pretty much. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's interesting to see how, from my vantage point, I mean, I'm significantly younger than you. Right. But you lived around the corner. Right. Um, how you've evolved as that source material has entered your life, uh, which was just an interesting thing that, mm. you know, occurred inside of me just now. Um, at a few different points in the introduction, you mentioned that this book does not set out to prove that a God exists. Right. Nor does it set out to prove a particular conception of God. And at one point you go as far as to say that your assumption is that the reader already has some spiritual beliefs and that they are reading this book in an effort to help make those beliefs more vibrant and experiential. Okay. I'm interested in knowing why it was important for you to point that out. So as I said earlier, I wanted the book to be as pluralistic as possible, meaning so that it was available to as many people as possible. Aside from the fact that, you know, the purpose of writing a book is to sell books to other people. Not, I don't imagine making a lot of money on it. That's not why I wrote it. It wasn't about making money, but to get a message out there that I think is useful. But also because I, I think that if this message were constrained to a necessity to believe in a particular expression of what God is, or even whether there's a God at all, it would actually take away from it. Mm. There's, you know, there's an idea in Hasidus, right, that a soul, a person's soul has five aspects. Nefesh uh, neshama There's five layers of the soul. There's the part of the soul that's within the body and the part of the soul that's in the mind and the part of the soul that hovers above and then there's a part of the soul that's existing and connecting with mystical levels that are totally above our awareness. And then there's the space of Yechida. And the space of Yechida is the space where my soul is totally connected with all of reality, with God and God itself. Um, and that space, there's very little boundary. It's called Yechida. The word Yechida means one, right. unity. And if you have unity, there's very little boundary. There's no separation between molecules. You know, I was reading in, in Balvei Meshkaneva, I was learning with my daughter Zoe the other day, we're, we're in the middle of learning it, and um, he uses an analogy that he takes from Rav David Pavarsky, who's a Rebbe of, a Rebbe of mine, so I have special affinity for that. So That's nice. So, yeah, so um, I actually was, mer- I merited to be at his funeral, which was amazing, like 100,000 people in Bnei Brak is oh, really, wow. really amazing. Anyway, he draws an analogy between the difference between a pomegranate and an apple, right? So a pomegranate, because there's a, a saying of the sages that a, even somebody who's full of mitzvos, like a remon, like a pomegranate, can still be empty, right? Some though is it, the, the actual statement is those who are empty, even, despite the fact, even those who are empty are full of mitzvos, full of good deeds, like a pomegranate. So the 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 question he asks is, how could you be empty if you're full? And what does that have to do with a pomegranate? And what Pavarsky points out is that a pomegranate is very different than an apple because an apple, it's flesh, right? That has the husk, it has the the peel, and then it has the flesh. And then the seeds are kind of stuck within the flesh inside, right? But the flesh itself is kind of one whole, even though it's made of millions of molecules, but it kind of becomes one whole. So there's a certain unity of the apple. And even the seeds are unified with one another because they're all inside of a singular flesh. Whereas a pomegranate each seed has its own flesh, which is separate one from the other. Mm. And he says the, the symbolism of pomegranate, and the reason why that person, even though he's full of good deeds, is still empty, is because his life lacks a unifying principle. It lacks that unified space. So he has a lot of disparate points. I did a good thing here. I did a good thing there. I did a good thing there. But if he doesn't have a spiritual 
message and mission in his life, then all of his good deeds are individual moments where he did a good thing, but he doesn't get the satisfaction out of life. Whereas right. if my life is whole, there's a certain breakdown of those barriers and I'm on a journey. I'm not, a, I'm not having individual destinations, which relates to the point that we were saying before. So the echidah of my soul is that space of unity, right? So now if my relationship with God is limited to a philosophy or is limited to a specific way of looking at the world, then I'm, I'm minimizing what a relationship with God is, mm. right? If I, can't, if I could only have a relationship with God if I believed in what I believe in, then my relationship with God is limited, and my relationship with God is unlimited. Mm. It's absolute and unlimited. It's absolutely unlimited. Even if I woke up tomorrow and changed my mind, I could still have the same relationship with the same God. Even, God forbid, if I woke up one day and thought that God didn't exist, I could still have a relationship with my creator. And that's specifically why, which we talk about, why we use the word creator in the book instead of God, because it really cuts down to the source of the work that you do. we do in, in, in that program, but also the idea of it. I am trying to create, connect with the creator of my own creator and the creator of everything. So I can euphemistically call that God, right? In Judaism, we have like a plethora of names, right? For God, God, right, right. every name of God is just a different way in which God expresses himself through creation, right? That's, that's part of like a, a Jewish faith belief. But the names of God, are they're all euphemisms, so to speak, for something, right? But the question is, what is about God himself, his essence, Right, and that's what we're trying to build a relationship for, and that part of God is the part that's not merit-based. I'm going to distill everything you just said okay. into one sentence, okay. <laughs> and I might be wrong, and it might be incorrect. Okay, you're trying to be as godlike as possible. You're trying to make the information be as broad as possible, so it's as unified as possible. Well, it's not. So the only reframe, which is, a, which is an interesting concept, because normally when you broaden something. You know, they say, don't be so open-minded that your head falls out. Right. But here, by being as broad as possible, you're really being as unifying as possible. Yeah, right, right. That's that, what you just said now, yes. It's not so much about being like God, but allowing the part of me that's closest to God to have expression. Right. The part of me that's closest to God is the part of me that's least constricted and least separated and specific, right? Now, I'm not taking away from specificity, Right. If if you go as we go through the book, which we'll touch on a later point, we talk about the difference between the singular subjective mission of a person in this world, right, right, versus the broader fundamental mission of a person. And the book doesn't look to deny the subjective mission. Like I have a mission. My mission is to work with the population that I work with. I believe that God put me in this world to do this work, to write the book that I wrote, to do the work that I'm doing in the living room. That's why I, my soul came to this world. To be Menachem. That's my mission, right? And that, and that, right? And that has a very specific thing. Menachem, Yitzchak, Ben Avraham, right? Ben Leah Devor, right? I have a very specific mission. And the Arizal says that no one ever could have or will fulfill the mission that I was put here to, to, to fulfill. And that's amazing. And that's wonderful. But that has nothing to do with while I'm on that mission, is God along with me? That's a fundamental mission, which we're going to get into later. So it's being able to operate within those two spaces at the same time. Meaning I'm not saying that the Yechida is the only thing that exists. The Yechida is, uh, is a part that's very hard to, to, to express, but it's the part that's most powerful. And I also, I, I need to be able to live within my nefesh 
right, within my soul here on this world and live with all my, my difficulties and my pain and my suffering and my knuckleheadedness and my lack of guriness and my, right, whatever. I said guriness. Um, and um, so... Keep that so, in. Don't edit that out. Don't edit that out. So uh, I don't know if I'll listen, so we'll see. But my guruness, that's what the word I was kind of like. But, um, but, but it doesn't matter because in that space of Yechida, it doesn't matter that I'm flawed and I'm a knucklehead. That it's not merit based. It's there, and when I can access that, then my experience of the separate parts is much, much different. So your experience of that is what informed the decision to be broad. Yes, that's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. It's really, it's really interesting. Um, but yeah, that was the intention. The intention was, I need this to be in order to be authentically to express it the way it is. Um, now, what's interesting is the book itself, Bavavi Mishkan Evna, was not written that way. No, it wasn't. It was written for a very, very particular, and I acknowledge this, and I, and I don't want to do any disrespect to that text. I was borrowing ideas from that text, and I tried to rely on it and be as true to them as possible. And his ideas were written for a very, very specific group of people with a very, very specific outlook and philosophy on life, one of which I, for the most part, I mean... I try. I wasn't it not even written at first. Weren't those talks that he gave to people? No, I, there are other books that he written that are really talks. But this was a book, as far uh, as I understand, is a book that he wrote. But the the audience that he was going for was not, you know, an American Jew, even American Jewish audience. That's not what he was going for. For sure, not for anyone secular. Right, but definitely not for a secular, you know, uh, someone outside the Jewish community. But the ideas, nonetheless, because every great idea is not limited to a specific subset of people. It, it shouldn't be. The more it's limited, the less true it is, I think. You know, to fully tie this whole thing together, the very first thing I asked you about was you speaking in the I form. From yeah. my vantage point, from my perspective, the only way that the idea of being as broad as possible makes sense is in a context of your own experience. Like if you had, right. if you had written that from uh, some kind of royal we or some kind of uh, authoritative you know, whatever. I don't know if it would have came across the same way as like, no, no, I want this to be as broad as possible. I want everyone to have a portion in this. Yeah, no, that's definitely true, which is part of, I think, why um, I was willing to step away from my false humility that didn't want to do that. You know, not that it was totally false. Some of it was real. Some of it's uh, pretentious. But, but, But that's why it seemed like that's what needed to happen because if I wasn't speaking if I wasn't sharing my experience, then I was talking, I was, I was talking at you. Right. I was telling you. And, and this is, that would dilute this message. This is not a message of telling. It's, it's a message of sharing, which is an idea, um, from, uh, you know, one of the, from, from Chuck C. That's an idea that he talks about in a new pair of glasses. So before we close, yeah, I just want to know, is there anything else you want the listeners to know about you or maybe something that you wanted to put in the introduction but you felt it wouldn't come across the right way in writing? Is there mm-hmm. anything else you want to add in this introductory interview? Nothing that comes to mind right now. I feel like a pressure, like I'm supposed to. No, no um, if you don't, that's good. Um, nothing that comes to mind, only that it's my earnest hope that it's received um, in the way in which I tried to put it forward. You know, like I'm... I'm when I say I'm a very flawed guy, I'm very flawed in the sense that I'm just as capable of, you know, incredible arrogance just a and pretentiousness ago, as possible. Before we started, Menachem ripped his shirt off and 
uh, bare knuckle box some guy in a parking lot over the last sandwich. Right, exactly. So I, you know, but but at the same time, I, I truly have a desire and had a desire to try to write this in a certain from a certain vantage point. And and I my my like my my fervent my deep desire is that it's received in that way, and that obviously the mistakes are mine. Um, but even mistakes, I wouldn't even apologize for mistakes because I can't apologize for myself. Right. And which is a weird thing because part of writing this book, and this is part of the fear of putting a book out there is like, I might disagree with myself later. So then I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah. If your experience grows and changes where you no longer happy with what you wrote in this book, will you write another book with your current experience? Um, Maybe. Maybe I, it's hard for me to imagine that it would be different in the sense that this is not a philosophy. It's a method. You know, I can imagine certain aspects. I can imagine coming to a place where I regret nothing in specific. Cause I don't regret anything yeah. that I put in there, but I can imagine maybe where I regret framing something a certain way or, or, or not including something or putting something in a certain context. Um, but part of the willingness to write the book is that this is just a method. It's just a recipe. And part of what we write at the end, and it's oftentimes, sometimes you read a book, it's really nice to skip to the end before you go to the beginning, is is like, I really invite the reader to take it as they will. Like, use these exercises, add on your own, um, give it your experience, pass it on to others. And what you do with this stuff is on you. And I hope we get to meet as we trudge the road of happy destiny, as they say. You know, I, I hope so. If we meet and you have something to share with me, I, I hope that I'm open-minded to hear it. Wow. You know, that's like really, that's really how I feel. Because, you know, when I was 15 or 16 years old, I was living in a basement apartment in Farakra and I was attending a school that I didn't really belong in. I, di- I say that I didn't belong in there because Jewish Orthodox people in New York have a certain experience of Judaism, of the culture of Judaism, Orthodox Judaism, than people that, let's say, live outside of New York. And what you're they call from, out-of-towners. And you're from San Francisco. Uh, I grew up, I had time, some time in San Francisco, and I became religious, was really in Florida, and my experience was very different. So I was like a deer in headlights when I came to New York, and I was encountered like this very, very severe, part of it was just New York, it something to do with Jude, Judaism or Orthodoxy or Jewish Orthodoxy or anything like that. It's just New York. New Yorkers... I love New Yorkers. It took me a long time to love New Yorkers. And it took me a long time to admit that I am a New Yorker. That's the Joyner thing. But I really admire New Yorkers, but New Yorkers are intense. We can be very intense. And I was like a deer in headlights. I was like, really, I was a skateboarding kid from Palo Alto, California, made a stop in Miami, um, who could be rebellious and also deeply seek spirituality at the same time, you know, without wanting to break the rules. So I was like, I was very, very much felt... Like I didn't have a place in the world. And I bought an album from Aerosmith. And on that, I don't remember the name of the album, but on that album, there's a song where Steven Tyler talks about his experience with addiction and the end of his experience. I believe he wrote the story in, in rehab. And he used the term, which is a cliche term, but cliches are amazing because they're true and people say them because they're true. Life's a journey, not a destination. And that struck me at that time. And I don't know that I incorporated that idea into my spiritual life for a long time, but I knew that it was true. And I knew it was true in, an, in, an dis, in a disconnected way. And today I know that that's true 
in a very connected way. That is very alive. My spiritual path is a journey. And the most important thing is that I walk that journey without fear and not be afraid of changing my mind or slipping. Um, because I have friends around me that will help me, and most of all, I have God in my life. And that's like a that's a very comforting thing. That's a very comforting thing. Amazing. Thank you so much, Menachem. Thank you, Shmai. What, what an honor. What an honor. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So uh, thank you, Shmaya. That was really amazing. Um, I'm sure I overshared, but uh, that's the beauty of editing. But <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't think you overshared uh, that much no, at all. No, no. Okay. Anyway, I'm really, really grateful. Thanks for listening in. Thanks for joining Consciously. Thank you for listening to the Consciously Podcast. Consciously is a project of The Living Room, which is a division of Our Place, New York, and made possible by the kindness of the Capellius family, in memory of Tsipora Basravaro. The host of Consciously is Menachem Posnansky, and produced by Chaim Kohn, and our trusted assistant to the regional co-host, Shmaya Hanekman. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can give us a review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribe on Apple or wherever else you get your podcasts. We sincerely welcome and appreciate your feedback, so please feel free to email us at consciously62 at gmail.com or on our Instagram and Facebook pages. Oh,